Before we start the sermon, just one little technical note. You may have noticed some of the song, song slides. The words are being cut off. Our projection system here in the sanctuary just ran aside. Sometimes it's going to squeeze stuff. And it did that to my sermon slides as well. So you're going to just a heads, heads up as we uh, go through. If things get cut off a little bit, that's what's going on. We are in the process of getting a new projection system in here, but it won't be until next month at the earliest that we have it in place. So today we are, we'll be looking at verses that speak of the day of the Lord, also known as the last days or Jesus' second coming. There is much debate and difference of opinion in the Christian church related to the last days, especially in some of the details, and we're not going to talk about those differences. This morning will be an overview, and I want to finish the sermon today looking at how God says, you and I are to live our lives in response to the knowledge that the last days are coming. This week is week two of our series going through the second letter to the Thessalonians. I want to start with a little background to the two letters that Paul wrote to the Christian church at Thessalonica. If you put up the slide with the map, I'm a former Marine, I love maps, so whenever I can use one, it always helps. So we see in the book of Acts on Paul's second missionary journey that, among other cities, Paul visits the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens in that order. So if you go to the top, you can see Macedonia just below it is Philippi, and then down is Berea, Thessalonica, drop down two, and you see Athens there. So he visits these cities in that order, and it appears from the book of Acts where we get kind of a history of his journey that Paul is in Thessalonica only a few weeks. Paul's typical pattern is to preach in the synagogue on the Sabbath for as long as he is allowed. Sometimes that's longer and sometimes it's shorter. In this case, it was shorter. Only three three Sabbaths are mentioned before some jealous Jews gather a mob and, and incite a riot. And so Paul leaves a new Christian church there in Thessalonica, where there is opposition. Now, as we saw on the map, he goes to a couple of other cities, and the last one I mentioned was Athens. In Athens, Paul is so concerned for these new Christians in Thessalonica that he sends Timothy back to check on them. Now, too often we just slide past this kind of history, if we even think about the fact that there is history and the people involved. So imagine with me that you are one of those new Christians in Thessalonica. You could be Jewish or Gentile. Your background might be religious or non-religious. But you hear from Paul the good news of Jesus, and somehow you know, you know that it is true. That somehow we know what that is. That is the Spirit of God telling us, convincing us, what you're hearing is the truth. And as a result, your life is changed. At most, you receive three to five weeks of teaching. At most. Maybe less. And then Paul has to leave. And again, there's opposition to this new group of Christians that you're a part of. So you are very glad some weeks later to see Timothy... And you're also very glad 
a little bit after that to get those two letters that Paul writes to you. You know that you are not alone. And so, as you look at Acts, after Timothy returns to Athens, Paul writes the first letter to the Thessalonians. And in this letter, he responds both to their situation and to some of their questions. And it is believed that Paul wrote his second letter just shortly after. Not Other letters, you know there's a big gap. If he writes two letters to a place, you know there's a big gap of time. In this case, there's no indication that there's much of a gap at all before he writes the second letter. Now, in the first letter, among other topics that Paul writes about, Paul answers a question about Christians who die before Jesus' second coming. Now, have you ever wondered where this question came from? I think in questions, and so I did think that question. And the answer is we are not told what prompted it, but this we do know from looking at the book of Acts and looking at actually at most of the letters in the New Testament. In many of the letters, the writer is writing either correcting a false teaching or dealing with some situation that has come in to the church. And so what we know is that all kinds of other teaching and claims made their way into the Christian church. And that wasn't just true then, it's true today. There are still many claims and ideas that are coming into the Christian church. Well, Paul answers their question by explaining that just as Jesus rose from the dead, at his second coming, Jesus will resurrect all those Christians who have died. Paul also talks in the first letter about what the general situation will be when Jesus comes a second time. Paul says that life will be just going on as usual. And then Jesus will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. I think, Je I think Paul borrowed that phrase from Jesus because that's how Jesus talks about it. And then Paul reminds them of the kinds of lives that Christians are to live while they wait for Jesus' second coming. And then in, second, in his second letter, Paul speaks about Jesus' second coming again, and that brings us to our verses which, for us today, which is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. So remain seated, but let's read together from the screen, if you can. That is pretty bad, isn't it? These verses. So if you have your... Now, here's a little plug to the sermon handout, sermon that comes out each week. It has the verses printed. So follow along with me as best you can. Read with me. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together into him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, 
so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, because we do not teach often on Jesus' second coming, I would like to take a few minutes to give some background on the day of the Lord. First thing to say is that it is not a topic that begins in the New Testament. Old Testament prophets spoke of the day of the Lord. And in both Old Testament and New Testament, writers speak of two ages, this present age and the age to come. Now, Jews in Jesus' day had their own expectation of how this would occur. And it was based on, it's a little bit like today's movies, they were based on a story, true story. Okay, sometimes about the only thing that's connected is the name of the person. But in this case, it's based on some things from the Old Testament. But the teaching had developed and added some other things. So if you put up the first slide, it looks like this. The Jews knew that they were living in the present age. The horizontal lines you see there are timelines. Jews believed that the Messiah would come. That's that vertical line. And when he came, that would, his coming would end the present age. That coming is also called the day of the Lord. They be- expected that on the day of the Lord, the Messiah would defeat all of Israel's enemies and would establish Israel like it had been during the, the rule of King David. And then the other thing is that when he comes, it would begin the age to come. So that's how they thought, and that's what they taught. But in contrast to this, what actually happened, if you go to the next slide, you can see still the two timelines. You've got this present age and the age to come. And Jesus is the Messiah, and he comes. And Jesus began the age to come with his first coming. Jesus, in fact, if you look at the Gospels, Jesus announced that the kingdom of God is here. So the age to come had begun. But Jesus did not end the present age with his first coming. The two ages overlap. And so the present age will not end until Jesus' second coming, the day of the Lord. Now, we all have experience with the present age, with the brokenness, the sin, and the selfishness, and the suffering, and the death, both in us and in others. But since we are in also in the, pres- in the age to come, and we have been for 2,000 years, as C.S. Lewis put it in the book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan is on the move, which is a way to say the Spirit of God is working, that redemption and restoration have begun, but they are not complete yet. 
So what I'd like to do is organize the remainder of the sermon by asking and briefly answering four questions. That word brief is a key word there. Briefly answering four questions related to the day of the Lord. When will Jesus come a second time? What will happen when Jesus comes a second time? What must happen before Jesus comes again? And how should we live today in light of this? So question number one, when will Jesus come a second time? The short answer, only God knows. I'm a preacher, I can't give you just a short answer, so let's get a longer answer. And in this answer, I'm going to be referencing, actually through the rest of the sermon, a lot of scriptures. The book of Acts begins with Jesus appearing to his followers 40 days after his resurrection. And in Acts 1, 6 and 7, we read, So when they, they being Jesus' disciples, his followers, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You can see in their question, Jesus, will you restore Israel now? Are you going to do the rest of what we're expecting? That they were still influenced by the teaching of their day. His followers believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They could see with Jesus' death and resurrection that things were were happening differently from what they had been taught. But still, wouldn't it be nice if Jesus restored Israel right then? And so they asked the question. And he says, it's not for you to know. Then Jesus tells them, tells his followers, you're to be my witnesses, and then he ascends into heaven. And while they're, I mean, and they watched him go up. And while they're standing there, an angel appears and speaks to them in verse 11 and says, men of Galilee... Why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So they knew that Jesus would come a second time, but they didn't know when. Let's look also at what Jesus said to his followers not too much, too much time before that in Matthew 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, and he's talking about his second coming, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. That's where the short answer came from. Only God the Father knows. But even from our verses today in verse 2, we see that some people in Thessalonica were saying, Oh, Jesus has already come a second time. The day of the Lord has already happened. And, if you caught it, that message had supposedly been sent to those Christians in Thessalonica by Paul. It had not. He He makes it very clear. He did not say that. He did not send that. Now, there's a lot of other verses that that we could look at that give us the same message. That only God the Father knows when Jesus will come a second time. But even so... Through the years, plenty of people have claimed that God told them when Jesus is coming again. And again, the short answer, God did not do that. There's one other thought before we move on that goes with this message that we don't know when Jesus is coming again. And that is that since we don't know when Jesus will come again, we should be prepared for his coming 
all the time. Jesus gave uh, parables on just that point. Be ready all of the time. Question number two. What will happen when Jesus comes a second time? We're going to look at four passages. So let's look at these verses. Hebrews 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And he says in that verse, when Jesus comes the second time, he will not be there that second time to deal with sin. That's because Jesus dealt with sin through his life, death, and resurrection, his first coming. It's already done with. He comes this time to save. And as we're going to see in our next verse, he's coming to restore. In Acts 3, 20 and 21, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So here, he's pointing back, the speaker is pointing back to the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets, talking about the day of the Lord, saying, yes, there is going to be a restoration, and it's coming, not here yet. So when Jesus comes a second time, one to, be, one to save, second to restore, and then third, Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This verse refers to judgment. We're told more than once that everyone, nobody's excluded, everyone will give account for our lives to God who will judge us. And if we're honest about our lives and about our own motivations and everything else, we're going to see, yes, maybe there were some things we call good, but there's also a lot of selfishness and sinfulness there. And if, if we understand and believe and realize that we're going to stand before God, who knows not just everything we said and did, but he knows our thoughts and our motivations of our heart. To be told there's going to be that kind of judgment is frightening, or it ought to be, that God is going to judge us that way, unless we have the hope that Jesus gives. And then the fourth from 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, some Bible scholars believe that this burning talked about here refers to the earth being destroyed. Some believe it refers to the earth being purified. In any case, whichever way it is, then we get a new heavens and a new earth. Now, there's a whole lot more that can be said about what is to come, and there's even more that we don't know. But our focus from our verses isn't on question number two, it's on question number three. What must happen before Jesus comes? Let's look at verse three again. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, talking about the, the day of the second coming of Jesus, will not come until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And so Paul's being very clear. Yes, Jesus is going to come. The day of the Lord is going to come. 
but not until after the rebellion and after the man of lawlessness appears. And the idea seems to be when the rebellion comes and when the man of lawlessness comes, you will not miss it. What they had been told, the Thessalonians had been told was, oh, he already came and you did miss it. And he's saying, oh, you're not going to miss this. It's too big. You will know of what is going on. And that word rebellion, actually in the Greek, is apostasy. Now, there's been rebellion against God since Adam and Eve. But the picture seems to be that when this happens, it's going to be a really, really big rebellion. Then for the man of lawlessness, we do not know who he is. But Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs, remember that word Christ means Messiah. False messiahs, false Christs, and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, here's the thing to recognize. In every age, there are people who set themselves against God and against God's plans and are antichrists. I put it in quotes and I use a small a. Okay. What we see in our verses is that the man of lawlessness not only will want to be worshipped, he wants to be worshipped in place of God. Which, if you look in the Bible, you'll notice that's the exact same thing that Satan wanted. He wanted to dethrone God and be worshipped as God. The little man of lawlessness wants the same thing. And then we see that the, in our verses, the man of lawlessness will get his power from Satan and he will deceive many people. And then in verses 10 to 12, we are given a warning. The verses say, some people refuse to love the truth. That is, they refuse to believe that there is a God, that God is our creator and our king, and that what God says is true. And so it is as if God says here, okay, if this deception is what you want, you want to believe this lie, you can have it. Do you realize how dangerous that is? That you and I can say, you know what, God? I'll, I'll, I'll get to you later. And it's as if God says, okay, fine. You want later, 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 later? As in never? You get it. You can get it. And so these people who are being deceived, who want to be deceived, are going to be rightly condemned by God. Now, in all of this, the man of lawlessness is under God's sovereign control. The man will not appear. He will only appear when God allows him to. And God will limit him just as God limits Satan and limits our own evil. And then we're told that Jesus will destroy the man of lawlessness at his second coming. Now, as you can see, there are many details we're not told. And if you're like me, we really would like to know. But God didn't tell us. He told us enough, and he wants us to trust him. Well, that takes us to question number four. How should we live today in light of this? And I think this is actually the most important question for us today. Jesus' coming is still in the future. And I don't know about you, but for many, many years, I thought it is 
way in the future. Don't even need to think about it. No, it's in the future, yes, but God told us. But why has he told us what he has about this? I think in part for motivation and for hope. Now, we already looked at 2 Peter 3.10, which talked about Jesus' second coming with the earth and the heavens burning. But look at verse 11 of, of 2 Peter 3. Since all these things are, to, are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter both asks and answers the question in the question. He says, so, since the world as we know it will end, and as we've already talked about, since everyone will be judged impartially, and since Jesus will save all those that God, all the people that God gave him, how should we live? And the answer, we should live godly and holy lives. Now, what does that mean? To be godly and holy is to be like Jesus in our thoughts, our motivations, our words, and our actions in every relationship and in every circumstance. Today, there's, there's a kind of a, a shift off of what we used to be told. We used to be told, oh, okay, I'll, I'll agree that, that maybe there is a, a sacred part of life, but they, our culture says there's a division between the sacred and the secular. What we're doing right here is the sacred. And for a lot of people, keep it here. The rest of life, after you leave the church building, that's secular, and the two are totally disconnected. Nowadays, we're told, well, maybe they're not even a sacred. If you want one, it's your own personal sacred. No, what God tells us is everything is sacred in the sense that every part of life that we live, we live before God. He's involved in it. He's spoken to us about it in his word, and he's going to call us to answer for it. So every part is sacred. And that's connected to us, the, the command and the direction for us to be holy and godly. Now, we cannot be like Jesus in our thoughts and motivations and words and actions on our own. So it's good news we have in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit is working in Christians to transform Christians to become more and more like Jesus. Christians are not left alone either. Let's go back to two verses from last week that talk about Jesus' second coming. And remember, we don't know when that'll be, and so we should always be ready. And so this is what we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 and 6. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. All through the Bible, light is associated with what is good, what is right, and what's pleasing to God. And all through the Bible, night and dark is associated with evil and rebellion against God. And so the direction here is that if you're a Christian, you are a child of light. You are called by God to copy Jesus by doing good, by loving God, by loving others, by obeying God. Jesus himself said, you're the salt of the earth and you're a light. Don't hide the light. 
Well, part of obeying God is to be awake and sober. To be sober means to look at yourself and to look at the world around you through the lens of God's word. Be realistic about your own faults and failures and your need for God. Don't just focus on the failures of others and don't just focus on your own desires. To be awake and sober means, and to follow God means to choose, learn to trust God. Choose, let me get this right, choose to learn to trust God. It is a learning process, and God gives us lots of opportunities to practice trusting him. Choose to depend on God. Whoa. Choose to obey God. Now, I talked about motivation earlier. Some of the motivation of the Lord's Day is negative, but most of it is positive, and the hope is positive. Judgment is that negative part, <clears throat> that we do not want to be condemned, and especially when we realize that we all deserve to be condemned. But Jesus takes that condemnation that we deserve on himself so that justice is met and mercy can be offered. That's the negative. We live in the present age with all of its darkness, brokenness and darkness. And, but we're also, if you remember the timelines from the second slide, we're also part of the, of the age, in the first part of the age to come. And so we can experience redemption and restoration now, even though it isn't complete yet. So when Jesus comes the second time, the present age, with all of its brokenness, will end. And that is something to look forward to. When that happens and, ju and the judgment comes, justice will be completely served. Every injustice on earth will be righted. And you and I know that there, even though there is justice done, it's not perfect and it's not complete. And there are plenty of injustices not yet addressed. They will be. So justice will be, set, will be served. And in heaven, there will be no more death or sorrow or pain, or sinful selfishness, what the Bible calls the flesh. It will be gone. Christians will be transformed with perfect heavenly bodies. And best of all, Christians will see Jesus face to face. Now, in response to all the good that God has done for us and all the mercy that God has shown us in the past, but today we're looking forward as well. And we see there's a lot of good that God is going to do for us. And there's still mercy that God will show us. We should want to please God in all that we think and say and do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that you've given us, for the warnings you've given us. Especially we thank you for the hope as you share with us our true condition, our need for you, and how you have answered all of our needs and provided for all of our needs for forgiveness, for mercy, for strength, for hope. You made us to need you and you, you love us. You made us to need you to give us and you give and give. Lord, we thank you for all of these things. We pray that you would work in us, that we would respond to your love with love, the love you've given us for you and for others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond with a song.